The hardest race I've ever run was actually an ultra marathon in South Africa called Comrades. And Comrades is a 54 mile running race. Uh, you only have 12 hours to finish it. And if you don't finish it within 12 hours, you basically are recorded as a DNF or it did not finish. And so I was able to get it done in just under 11 hours. But I do think that there was a point, probably hour 10, where I went to like a different state of consciousness. <laughs> and it was a very surreal, scary experience, but was able to get it done and, and knocked out 54 miles. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Corey Shear. Corey is the founder and CEO of Trust-Centric Consulting, an organization and leadership development firm. He has an executive MBA from Rockhurst University and a doctorate in educational leadership and policy analysis from the University of Missouri. He is the co-author of the National Survey on Brand and Trust, as well as the developer of the online course, The Complete Guide to Building Organizational Trust. He is also the author of Closing the Trust Gap, Taking Action on What Matters Most for Leaders, Teams, and Organizations. You can learn more about Corey at TrustCentricConsulting.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Corey. Corey, uh, welcome to the Corporate Couch this morning. Jeff, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, very honored. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, you're you're only my second uh, podcast guest in the new year. We're recording here January fifteenth, twenty twenty four. Martin Martin Luther King's birthday. So there we go. Yeah. Um, and as we talked offline, uh, my first recording this year was with uh, former mayor of Kansas City, Sly James. So. Uh, it's a tough act to follow, but I was going to say no pressure at all. I'm glad you told me uh, just a few minutes ago that otherwise I may have had to reschedule because <laughs> he is, he's incredible. And I'm so glad that you were able to connect with him via the podcast. Yeah, it's been great. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. I just love your career journey. It's been, I mean, I've interviewed uh, probably about 65 guests on the podcast since it launched last January of 2023, but your career journey is just wild to me. And I'm, I can't <laughs> wait to, and of course your book, uh, closing the, the trust gap that you just uh, published in uh, November of uh, 2023. So we'll talk all about that, but let's start with a fun question. Yeah. Um, so even for people that know you a little bit, Corey, what, what one thing would surprise them about you? There's a lot of people that know this about me, but there's far more probably that don't, which is during, during my college summers, 
I was a whitewater rafting guide. And in Colorado, it was a perfect summer job. You get paid to go whitewater raft in Colorado, meet new people, learn all sorts of things about technical rescue and big water and low water and and also about customer service and risk management. And so I did that for a few years. And then that ultimately led to a full-time staff position at a company in Colorado that I worked at for many years up until I was 30 years old. And I kind of jokingly say that I was given far too much responsibility in light of the age that I was, but it was such a crucible season and a, and a learning laboratory for me. And I still think about some of those attributes of leadership that I was taught and learned from that. And then the the neat part about it is we as a family continue our recreational pursuit and commitment to outdoors and rivers. And I've done the Grand Canyon with my son and I've done Hell's Canyon with my family and the Salmon River and many other rivers. But now what's interesting and a lot of fun is that my oldest daughter, who's a college student at Mizzou, she is a summer rafting guide at the same company that I was at. And this last summer, we actually got to row a commercial trip in the same group of boats together. And it was so surreal that I was running lead boat for my daughter with customers. It was one of the best moments of my life. It was a complete full circle experience. And now to watch my daughter learning some of those same things and being pushed and challenged and becoming an adventurer and uh, somebody who has a a deep love for the outdoors. That's been one of the neatest things for this last year of my life. Wow. That's fascinating. Now, uh, did you have, uh, and I, I've only gone white water rafting once in the Crested Butte, uh, Colorado area, I believe. Um, so it's different categories of difficulty, right? And yes, so did you ever have any like crazy thing happen to you know a boat, uh, <laughs> a raft? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Uh, some to my own boat, but more often just observing or being on the river when you saw things happen with other boats, and then being pulled into those rescue situations. That was a big part of the work that I did. Although you know the vast majority of trips that I took down. It was without incident from a risk management standpoint, but the challenge then became, you know, even though I have whatever 8,000 commercial river miles that I've done, the challenge of course becomes when I'm taking Jeff down the river with his family, how do I ensure that I'm giving him the same experience that I would give the very first time that I went rafting as well? How do I make it not feel rote or same uh, because every customer that I took down the river, oftentimes it was their first and perhaps even their only time experiencing it, even though it might've been my 800th time. So that was a, that was a really important kind of learning that I had to be mindful of that even when I was tired, or this was the same thing over and over and over that these customers were paying really good money to come experience this. And I needed to ensure that what I was doing was for them, not for my own sake. And that was an important lesson in my 20s, for sure. Okay, I'm going to compare you to the great uh, Michael Jordan, because (laughs) what you just said, that's what Michael Jordan used to say about each game. He he said, look, there's going to be people here that have never seen me play. So I want to give them the same experience as the, you know, people that, you know, come every night that are season ticket holders. So 
You're, yeah, you're, it's a great leadership lesson. I think it's yeah. a reminder for all of us when whether it's a client engagement or if we're bringing in a new employee or even talking about what we're so passionate about again and again and again for people who are listening or who are experiencing that, that might be their first. And so we owe it to them to, we can choose our enthusiasm. We can choose our energy that we put forth towards that. And that's part of the stewardship of of the work that we get to do with whatever we've been blessed to give to others. And I think that that's something that is an important reminder. I totally agree. Totally. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get into your career journey. What was fun for you growing up? What did you love doing? I was a huge baseball fan. A lot of different types of, you know, different baseball leagues. Was an avid golfer at a young age. And I remember <laughs> we grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I remember throwing the golf bag on on my back, hopping on my bike and, you know, riding my bike four or five miles to get to the golf course. And then riding home, just things that we would probably never see or even think about with our own children today. But my brother and I and my sister and I, we were a close family growing up. We experienced a broken family. When I turned about 12, uh, our parents got a divorce and that led to some pretty significant mental health challenges for me and something that I really had to struggle and journey through. And it's given me certainly an appreciation and an empathy for the many people who have some similar challenges today. But the things that we did, we were typically always outside, always active, always exploring. And and that was something that I think is now carried into my current reality with my own kids. I have four kids and my wife and I, Jamie, we've been married as of February of 2024. We'll have been married 25 years. So we're oh, wow. excited to celebrate that. The, the silver anniversary, I believe. So Silver, that's right. Yes. Well, all the listeners out there, uh, just that's, you know, buy Corey some, something with silver in it to, <laughs> for his anniversary. That's um, right. Yeah. I mean, who, uh, did, who was the role model from a kind of health fitness? I mean, you're in great shape. I think you've done 29 marathons. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, I read about your journey on LinkedIn with your son and uh, hiking the Grand Canyon and all that uh, yeah. wasn't just the, Hey, let's go on that. where you know, 95% of the tourists go like I did with my yeah. kids when they were, uh, God, uh, <laughs> seven and nine, maybe I forget uh. their ages, but, and I was so worried about my son at the Grand Canyon because he was always a, a wanderer. He was the younger one. And sure. And I'm like, there's no rails here. It's like, no, it's, it's a legit, you know, that hike is significant. And we had, we had rafted nine days through, through the Canyon on the river. And then we actually hiked out. Uh, we, we did an, ex, it's called an exchange where eight of us hiked out, eight hiked in, and then eight stayed on the trip. We were part of the crew that hiked out. So we experienced the river part of the Grand Canyon, but we also experienced hiking up and out of the Bright Angel Trail, which was not easy. It's nine miles um, you have one mile of vertical gain over the course of nine miles of travel. And I think it was a six or seven hour hike. We were completely exhausted. We ate two fast food meals within an hour of each other. We were so famished. Oh, so geez. yeah, but we were exhausted, but a great experience. And the role model for me, you know, I, I lived a fairly typical childhood, I think, where my love of the outdoors and my love of endurance, athletics and things like that really was sparked was during college, especially, you know, especially during my summer years of rafting, I just gained an appreciation for that. And 
as somebody who I'm, I'm, I always want to be moving and I'm, and I'm driven in my pursuit. So endurance athletics really became a huge outlet for me to be able to expend a lot of energy, but also get alone time as somebody who is an extroverted, I really cherish running and, and oftentimes I run alone. And that is, that's a gift for me whenever I'm able to do it. Yeah. I mean, 29 marathons, what was the hardest marathon you ran? The hardest race I've ever run was actually an ultra marathon in South Africa called Comrades. And Comrades is a 54 mile running race. And uh, you only have 12 hours to finish it. And if you don't finish it within 12 hours, you basically are recorded as a DNF or it did not finish. And so I was able to get it done in just under 11 hours. But I do think that there was a point, probably hour 10, where I went to like a different state of consciousness. <laughs> And it was a very surreal, uh, scary experience, but was able to get it done and and knocked out 54 miles. I'll, I'll never, I never want to do that long of a race again. That was my max. Wow. Uh, have you seen the uh, new movie Nyad about Diane Nyad? Uh, it's Jodie Foster and uh, Annette Benning. I have not. Yeah. You need to watch it. You know, Diane Nyad was the famous long distance swimmer. Yep. Did the English Channel. She swam around Manhattan Island, but she, her goal, her, her lifelong goal was to go t across uh, from Cuba to uh, yeah. Key West to the U.S. No, uh, no one had done it without whatever the shark uh, tank thing. I don't know. Yeah, the like protect. The, so, right, the cage or whatever it was. Yeah. So she tried it at 28 years old, failed. And then the, the story is about her journey to do it again at an older age. So it, it's a good, it's a good movie. And old, about the hallucinations you said, <laughs> at, you know, whatever the 10th hour, um, I think you'll yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. It's, it's a hard realization when you, you know, you say I paid to do this. I flew halfway around the world. I chose to put myself in this much misery. That is, you start having conversations with yourself for sure um, when you're 10, 15 miles away from the finish line. But I'm grateful. It was an incredible experience. And it was it was proof that, uh, that our bodies are amazing uh, and we can push them to limits that are, that are really... Um, pretty remarkable, especially if we put in the training on the front end, but it was, it was my favorite experience ever running was the Boston marathon. That was amazing. New York was an incredible marathon, was able to see all five boroughs of New York uh, by foot, which is a pretty cool way to see the city and actually get through all five boroughs in, in three and a half hours, which I don't know if you could do that with mass transit, but it was, <laughs> New York was one of my favorite experiences. 50, 50,000 runners and a couple of million spectators. It was remarkable. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I've never seen it. I'm, I'm from New York originally, about an hour north of the city, but uh, have have had many friends that have done it. Um, so growing up, what was your kind of, hey, when I'm, when I'm an adult, I'm going to do this. What was this for you? I really never had that moment, honestly. I was more of a late bloomer physically. I was more of a late bloomer in terms of my academic pursuits. I remember even struggling with that in college, halfway through college, trying to get some counsel from people of like, what should I do? And I really felt incomplete in my clarity of what was it that I really wanted to do, which is, I think, probably why I have 
gone through a few different iterations of my career experiences, which I've learned to appreciate and actually embrace that. I think for a while I was frustrated that I couldn't land in that one type of industry. But what I've realized over time is that for me and my own experiences, that's actually been a gift. And that's now translated well into the work that I do with a lot of different types of organizations and industries from a coaching and a consulting standpoint. So, but at the time it didn't feel very productive to, to not have good clarity on that. So when I was in college, I, I had a couple of majors. I was a comm major and I was an outdoor rec major because I was doing that in my summers. And then my communications major was very helpful from a business standpoint, but only until I went back and pursued my executive MBA at Rockhurst, that's when I started getting much more clarity in terms of management and leadership and uh, what, and specifically my love of working within the nonprofit sector. And that, that was a huge moment for me during that, that rocker season, that was a huge moment of clarity in terms of uh, my vocational pursuit. Yeah, I think, you know, out of all the guests I've interviewed, I think you're in the majority, Meg. Most people didn't know what they wanted to do. And, you know, mm -hmm. or they went, in, uh, you know, they went into college as, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And then they became, you know, went into computer science or something, you know, like it, you know, a lot of people change or they or they just got a degree and figure it out. So you go to uh, Southwest Baptist um, yep. University, which Joe Deshawn, my uh, co-host producer, uh, also went to. Uh, oh, he's he's okay. a little bit older than you. but uh, okay. So why Southwest Baptist University? I mean, you're from Cheyenne, Wyoming, and you're going <laughs> to Missouri. What was the... Yeah, what prompted me there, I... my my dad and my stepmom and I moved to St. Louis right at the beginning of my high school career. And then uh, I had got, I got connected with a couple of friends there in, in high school that I was involved with, with them. And we were friends all the way throughout. And then they ended up going to SBU and I, I did not go to SBU my freshman year. I went to a small school in St. Louis called Fontbonne university, played basketball there for a year, played golf there as well. And then I just, I was lonely. I was not connected. I was a commuter student. It was not the college experience that I was hoping for. And I, a bit on a whim, I was, I just made the decision to transfer to SBU. The cost was exactly the same, which was what my parents were concerned about. And as I look back, I think I realized that the reason why I went to SBU was so that I could meet my wife, honestly. <laughs> and I'm so glad because that we were, we got connected through some mutual friends on a bit of a blind date, just a few weeks into when I started there, my sophomore year, and we started dating and then we were married a few years later, but I learned so much. I took full advantage of my college experience and was an intramural director. I did, you know, speech and debate. I had never heard of forensics until I got there, but all of those things are, they, they really were helpful in, in terms of shaping who I am even today, even outside of my academic pursuit. So college was a really form formative time for me, for sure. Yeah, off the top of my head, uh, you're the, the third college basketball athlete. I've uh, so it's you, uh, Elizabeth Souter, who I, mm -hmm. I just had uh, published her episode, and Cody Isabel. So okay. I I got to go back or find two more, and I'll have a starting five. Uh, a pretty formidable. <laughs> uh, 
podcast guest list basketball wise. Yeah. <laughs> I hope the other four are better than me. I'll just put it that way. I I had a great experience playing basketball in college, but I realized how how many more people are so much better than I was, which was okay. That was part of the learning experience, but had a great experience uh, that freshman year. But I just, I needed a change. I, I wanted my identity to not be only focused on sports. I wanted a more comprehensive, fuller experience socially as well. That's why I transferred to SBU, which I'm grateful for. So you're, you, uh, you know, we've talked before um, over coffee and, um, and I've seen you speak um, in public. I mean, you, you just seem very intellectually curious, which I love. Were you always like that? Or is that, was that part of your metamorphosis in, in you know, mid, midway through college? I, I think that came later. I think that came even after college. My, my time on the forensics team was maybe the beginning of that where I remember our speech and debate coach, he's he basically set the expectation that you've got to have 60 minutes of completely memorized, unaided material that has to be perfect. They called it green, like a green light. And that was a huge challenge. But in in the midst of, of my college experience, to be able to have memorized that really pushed me and that academic exercise was something very new to me, but I embraced it and I worked hard at it. And, you know, the result was that I was on a, a national championship debate team and was had a blast. And that now, as I look back, because I do keynote speaking and lots of meeting facilitation, I'm so thankful that I was encouraged to do that with a great group of mentors and fellow students to prime what would ultimately become a significant part of my my career throughout each of the industries that I've served in, which was public speaking. So that started really in college. My, my purely academic pursuit, though, probably was not pushed until I went into my Rockhurst experience. And that was an intense academic season, which then led to an intense doctoral program at the University of Missouri. So that's when those two experiences were really what pushed me academically and from a research standpoint. Yeah. So I believe you were at the YMCA at the, when you went into the executive MBA program at Rockers. What, kind of, what prompted you to that? The YMCA was, I, I remember just being in the Y and, and acknowledging that being in Kansas City, there was, there was an opportunity to pursue an MBA. And I wanted to round that out I, because I was not a business major in college. I felt like the MBA route would have been a good one. Started doing some research, found Rockhurst. They awarded me a nonprofit scholarship. So it cut my tuition down substantially. And then that was, that was a huge incentive for me to pursue it at that point. And the schedule of the Hellsberg program was flexible enough to where we met every other Saturday, as opposed to meeting during the work week. And so I was able to fit a basically a full-time student class load into a busy workload. And my kids were still pretty young at the time. So I just felt like it was a great, great opportunity to pursue it. And as soon as I got plugged into Rockhurst, I knew it was going to be the right fit. It was a cohort model, very, very high level of uh, relationship, human-centered, driven, uh, emphasis from the faculty as well as from the fellow students. And I still have friendships from that cohort that are very close. And that was a, a watershed moment. That Rockhurst experience was incredible. 
Yeah, phenomenal program. I always like to ask people that pursue their uh, MBA and EMBA degrees, what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? I think the biggest takeaway was recognizing how how much there is to know and learn within business. And also acknowledging that it is not my responsibility to know all of that. For example, the individuals and the teams and the organizations that have such a strong focus on finances and all of the equations and all of the models and all of the reports. And I mean, from an accounting and from a finance standpoint, it's just incredible to me. And that is not something that I pursued outside of my executive MBA experience. It's just given me a deeper appreciation of, of who to hire, why you need to hire them, what they need to be focused on. But that's just an example of my eyes were open to this really, really vast knowledge that is required within business and how vital it is to have the right people who have the right knowledge and skills to be able to help with the fidelity of a business and that even the supply chain that was fascinating to me global economics was a fascinating topic accounting was really really challenging statistics was very very challenging for me but was able to endure through that and so that that was the overall experience for me was I was just introduced to this really new world of education and also that education rooted in business. It was invaluable. Yeah. That, I, I, I always ask people because, you know, I went right after college at night. So I, I came, I uh, worked at AT&T. They paid for my MBA. I went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City at night. And I just said, I'm going to take my time. I'm not going to kill myself, but I think it's important to get an MBA. And so I always like to see what other people's experience. Because to me, it was the learning. I mean, I think it's a little better to wait a little bit, you know, because it, it I'm just fresh out of college. I just start working. And now I'm, you know, with people that, you know, I'm 23 and they're 32 and 33 and they're already in the workplace. But I learned a lot from them. And made some good relationships, uh, as, as you said, also. So you, when you graduate from um, Southwest Baptist University, how'd you get your first job and what was it? I was hired to be an inside sales representative at a lumber company. Wow. I honestly had really no idea what that meant, honestly. <laughs> but we knew, I knew that we wanted to move to the Denver area. And I had a friend who was working he had graduated a year prior. He was working at the same lumber company at the Texas location. He knew somebody in Denver that was looking to hire. I moved, we moved to Denver and my wife was at the time we were dating, but she started her physical therapy master's program at the university of Colorado in Denver. So moved there and I was introduced to the world of corporate America. My introduction was actually three months driving a forklift and learning how to drive a forklift and run lumber through various processes in the warehouse. And they needed help in, in the warehouse more than they needed an actual inside sales rep. They were trying to train me to do inside sales rep. But I mean, I was literally days out of college. And my key takeaway from that experience was how to drive a forklift, which was a lot of fun, but also a lot of pressure and hard. 
And after that, after a few months of that, it just was like, this is not the right fit. So I moved into a more of a retail environment and it was an outdoor adventure company, like kind of like an RAI type of a store. And I resonated with the products that we were selling because I was doing that during the summers and I was in Denver. And so that, that started to align more with some of my affinities. And I, I enjoyed retail. I enjoyed the sales process. I didn't like the hours per se, but I did enjoy the interaction with the customers. I enjoyed the inventory side of it. I enjoyed the selling process. And I stayed in that organization for a couple of years before then being hired full-time to go up and work in the mountains at the same company that I was working at during the summers. And so that was the evolution where I went from college out to Denver, from Denver back up into the mountains in Buena Vista, and then worked in that organization until I was 30. Okay. Yeah. So it's interesting. Well, one, I'm glad that uh, when you said you was uh, the first job out of college was inside sales or a lumber yard. And then you said, talked about a forklift, uh, you were doing forklift work. I was thinking, hopefully they're not making you call people while you're no. on the forklift. Like <laughs> they're just trying to, you know, you're getting paid at that time, you know, $20 an hour yeah. <laughs> and you had to do forklift work while you were calling prospects. <laughs> no, they just, they had some, one of their forklift drivers that left and I was the newest person there and with the least amount of influence in terms of my sales territory, so to speak. And so they just said, well, what better way to learn the business of lumber than by hopping on a forklift? And they were right. I learned it pretty quick. Yeah, I uh, just interviewed Sue uh, Tetzlaff. Uh, she's uh, in consulting for hospitals. She's phenomenal. And uh, she, she actually had forklift operator on her LinkedIn. And I was like, yeah. that's interesting. But her family yeah. owned some kind of business work so but she worked in the family business <laughs> yeah so you're the second forklift operator <laughs> that i've interviewed yeah. so i love your career journey and you know we're not gonna go, we don't have to go through each job but i i just just kind of set it up um so you're in this you know noah's ark whitewater rafting and adventure for seven years uh, looked like you went to an interactive media holding company for a short period of time. Then you go yeah. into the not-for-profit world. So you kind of were in the marketing and promotions at the, at the Noah's Ark, go into not-for-profit, uh, spend about four years at the YMCA of Greater Kansas City. Then you pivot into William Jewell. So now you're in post-secondary education, Kind of the bridge there looked like you were head of the not-for-profit or a professor, um, yeah. then go into admissions, and you may yeah. have about a five-and-a-half-year run at William Jewell College, and then become pastor at the uh, Pleasant Out Valley the Baptist Church. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so and we'll get into your current business, but just kind of walk us through that journey and you said earlier that well yeah i didn't i didn't have a career strategy yeah and i, I totally get that uh i i did uh seth godin's uh, marketing wor workshop during uh, covid the, the marketing seminar and one of the prompts it was a cohort based learning uh one of the prompts was you know did you do you have a career strategy or did you have you know like uh -huh. i was like no. And I actually, my first guest on the podcast was uh, my friend, Harry Campbell. And I asked him, I go, Harry, did you ever have a career strategy? He goes, oh, hell no. 
<laughs> but I, yeah. take us through that journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so my time at the Y was amazing. I loved it. I the the practical reality for me at the Y was I was commuting thirty five miles one way every day from Liberty to Prairie Village, and I was I was getting more and more opportunity to grow at the Y. I love the organization. And I'm still plugged into that organization even now, which is great. But I had an opportunity. I was recruited to to oversee the nonprofit major at Jewel and to come in and to be able to innovate and to change some things and flip some of the classrooms and to rethink that. And with my with my MBA just completed, I was able to get hired in and move into an assistant type of a faculty or professor role. But the beauty about that was it was a my it's a mile from my house. And with a young family, it was a very functional decision in addition to just an opportunity to explore being a professor. But the fact that it was a mile away from my house helped tremendously. So from a work life, not balance, but a work life rhythm and a reality, it was a huge win for us and for my family. And then it was over lunch that the college president, after a few years of me doing that, invited me to consider moving into the office of admission, which I did that for a couple of years. And then over lunch again, where the pastor of my church that we had been attending for many years, we were having Taco Tuesdays, and he, out of the blue, said, hey, we've got a position that's opening up. It's kind of programmatic. It's not as pastoral, but it's more of a programmatic uh type of a role and wondering if you would be interested in that. And I was ready for a change. The work in the office of admission was really challenging. And it, I, I think I was longing for a different type of interaction that I had experienced as a professor. And so moving into more of an admission role, it just, it changed the dynamic. And so then the opportunity to go to a church staff role was appealing to me and I did that. I had just finished up my doctoral work as well. So I have to be honest, I was really wrestling with, I just spent three years getting a doctorate and now I'm going to take this educational leadership and policy analysis doctoral degree and this dissertation work that I've been really working hard on. And now I'm going to go into a church context. That was a, that was a hard thing for me to wrestle through, but I made the decision, did it, spent uh, nearly six there, six years there, and I'm very grateful for that because I think what that trained me to do and equipped me to do was to understand the importance of relationships, understand the importance of empathy and grace, understand the importance of people are, they are on a journey and they are bringing to work lots of things that are significant for them in the rest of their life. And so that that pastoral training that I received was is something that I am very mindful of and and very grateful for that of just it's not always about solving the problem immediately. So much of what we get to do, especially now in a consulting coaching role, is guiding and listening and encouraging, but also challenging and trying to clarify things. And so that pastoral training, I think, has really served me well in the work that I get to do now from a consulting and a coaching standpoint. And because I gave sermons every now and then it would also, and it was a, you know, it's a mega church. So speaking in front of 800 or a thousand people that, that gets you some pretty important training from a speaking standpoint as well. 
No, God, I love it. I love, I mean, just what you take out of each job is, and how you have applied it. Just, it, it, I love it. Um, I just want to talk about teaching because I, I, I taught for one semester in the University of Kansas business program as an adjunct uh, that they had a medical uh, professor going on medical leave. So it was literally like less than two weeks before the semester wow. began. Uh, but I, I got a lot of questions and I could see you be a great teaching professor. I mean, you just your mm -hmm. presence, your knowledge, your, you know, how you care about people. But what advice would you give people that are considering being an adjunct professor, uh, yeah. just as a, you know, as a, a, a add on to what they do, you know, uh, career -wise. That's a, that's a great question. I'm, I'm very thankful in, in another full circle experience. I'm, I actually got plugged back into Juul and I'm what's called a visiting professor. And so I teach business 202, which is a principles of management course on Tuesday mornings. I help some of the seniors with what they call a legacy project. And then I also teach another course there, but, and I do some advising, but it's been neat to be able to get plugged back in. It's not, you know, it's not full professor, faculty member. It's really the essence of what I love to do, which is to be in front of students. And how I've approached that in, even in my current role is I really think about in, in my approach of for that particular day, for that content, even the assignments, what is going to be the most helpful for these students? And it's not about me telling them what I know or what I think I know or what the book says, but how do I create a an experience that will be as helpful as possible for every one of those students? And maybe that experience is just that they feel like they're a part of the conversation or they're free to ask questions or they there's flexibility in when the assignments are turned in, or maybe there's somebody that wants to start their own business. For example, last semester, there was a student, he wanted to start his own business. And so we, during our class, we developed an entire pipeline sales strategy for him. And it's just been fascinating to be able to help almost in a more of like a consultative way for the students to say, I'm here to help you. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to introduce some frameworks to you so that you will feel equipped that at the end of this class, your time will have been well served because you are now thinking about the future differently with whatever pursuit it is that you're going to go after. If we can do that as professors or teachers or instructors, if we can really put other people's needs before our own, then I think that's going to be the best possible experience. And for individuals who have an opportunity to do adjunct or who are thinking about it, my encouragement is to pursue it and go do it. If you've got the time and the capacity and you've got the experience that warrants the opportunity for you to do it, I would encourage anybody to teach a class or two because it is a great way to give to other people and it's a great way to continue to hone your own skills. So I've loved it and it's been it's been a great, great experience for sure. And I can't wait. We've got, I've got 38 students that I'm going to visit for the first time tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. And I can't wait to meet them. Yeah, that's great. That's great. What I found, I loved uh, the teaching aspect of it. Uh, it was just, uh, everybody told me that's an adjunct professor says it's a, it's a lot of work it and is. They're, they're right. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. But also you can, you can shape your curriculum. You can shape your grading. You can shape your assignments yeah. to where 
it's more reasonable not only for you, but also most importantly for the students. Well, and it's harder the first time you do it because you have to put all the content together. So if you do multiple times of the same class, it's going to get easier. Um, Yes. So sometime during uh, being uh, at the Pleasant Valley Baptist Church, it looks like you came up with this idea of trust-centric consulting. So walk our listeners through that process. So that was three years ago. I'd been really wrestling with this kind of challenge of I was being invited by people randomly to talk about trust, about my doctoral research, about strategic strategic development or strategic planning because I had my executive MBA, I had my doctoral work. I was curious. I was I wanted to learn. I was talking to a lot of leaders. I started getting invited to do some of these things, some things for free, some things I was get, getting paid a little bit. And I, at that time, I had this inflection moment where uh, we had tragically lost both my dad and my stepmom to COVID in December of 2020 uh, in the same week. And I actually, I, you know, I helped plan their funeral and and I conducted the funeral and and those that was a very challenging time in January of 2021 and in fact it was it was 3 years ago this week that the funeral was and coming out of that i needed something that was and we were right in the middle of covid still so i needed something that would get my mind off of the challenges of what was going on and i just felt like there was an opportunity to create something new so i came up with the name put together a little llc and then <laughs> i just started plugging away and didn't really have a whole lot of uh, a lot of direction from other people i i just started in i dug in and as i got more and more into the work i realized that there there was an opportunity here there was something that i really loved about this work but also there was a need in the workplace and teams and leaders in terms of their um their challenges of of creating a strong workplace culture and I started getting hired more and more. And then I I turned into what I call a Christmas money consultant where I've got, you know, 2,500 bucks or $3,000 at the end of the year. And that's just enough to make Christmas maybe a little bit better for my family from a gift standpoint, but it still was very much a hobby. And it was really a, a little over a year ago where I started making the decision in my mind to, to think about the future of what was it that I really wanted to do long-term and Jeff, I think that's one of the challenges, especially, you know, I'm late 40s now. I don't really ever recall giving myself permission to ask that question of myself, which is, what is it that you want to do? I think that we get good at what is it that we need to do? What is it that we should be doing? But I rarely ask myself that question, especially vocationally. What is it that, that I wanted to do longer term? And as I wrestled with that, and as I saw this small little company called Trust Centric, but also opportunity there, I decided to dive in. And on April 4th of 2023, I left the church, left on good terms, and I went uh, full in, literally jumped in with both feet. I remember about a year ago, I wrote the number on my whiteboard that I needed to make in order for us to pay our bills for 2023. Like it was that stark of a moment for me of like, this, this is what is going to be required. And if I don't hit that number, I'm going to have to get really creative. Uh, and that was, that was a scary time. 
That was, but it was exactly what I needed in order to move me towards doing this work full time. So I think I'd built up some good momentum over those first couple of years in a part-time capacity, but only until I said, I'm going to give my full focus. Did I, did I think I realized that there was an opportunity here to serve others in this way? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we talked about it when we had coffee. I mean, I, you know, have losing, you know, a parent and a step parent, um, or, you know, or any relative during that COVID period just had to be just so hard because I believe you couldn't even visit the hospital, right? To say, no. yeah, no, we, we I, I, I wasn't even allowed by my siblings to come visit, visit them in their home, uh, because, COVID was just, it was raging and it was, uh, it was very, very scary. And the people who were in the home, they also got COVID as well. And then of course there was nobody that was being let in in the hospital. And I was speaking to a doctor or a nurse once a day, just to get an update that they were completely overwhelmed. So it was, it was terrible. It was a horrible, horrible time and deeply traumatizing for our whole family. My kids, they said goodbye to their grandfather via FaceTime at the kitchen table. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, I know we're going to talk uh, a fair amount on trust, but I just trust as it relates to COVID. And I'm, I'm not your political analyst uh, or advocate. I'm, but what I found personally about COVID, um, especially in the beginning, what I didn't like, and this is my personal viewpoint, it, it was disturbing to me that you couldn't trust what you're being told. It, it, the, the trust wasn't there from the, the government. I, in my mind, and this is, we're, we're not going to get any conspiracy theories, but just, I'm not a medical professional, but it just, it felt weird, you know, the, the COVID disease, because it's, it's asymptomatic to, death and everything in between, you know, you know, the lower scale asymptomatic or you lose your taste and smell to being on a respirator and dying and everything, you know, like when you have other SARS flus, there's you, you're throwing up, you have a fever, whatever, the, you know, whatever the symptoms, you know, you have the flu. So it just, for me, I, I just couldn't trust what was being said because it just didn't seem right. I, I, I just would love, you're the trust expert. I just, I would love your viewpoint on that. Maybe zooming out. I think the complexities of COVID, no matter, no matter where you stood on a particular topic or no matter what you thought was true, it always seemed like there was another either version of the truth or another perspective on that. And there were, there were lots of voices in the room and there were lots of voices in the room for something that was not certain. And when you couple those things where basically, you know, trust is the firm belief in the truth of something. And so if, if you have a hundred people and they each have their own version of the truth, it's, it's not possible for trust to be maximized, right? I mean, there may be elements of trust in that but it's just, it's simply impossible. If, if there's a hundred people in this room right now, and we all have a different version of the truth. And what we're talking about is something that is very, very significant at a global scale. That is, those are not optimal conditions for trust. It just isn't. And if you apply that into a business context, if you have a, if you have an executive team of seven people 
and that executive team in a complex, challenging season of that work, if there's seven different versions of truth, that is not optimal conditions for for a, the most effective that that team could be. That and so that's the dynamic. That's when we lose that. When we lose that 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 similar understanding of what is true, what is not true. That's where we really start to see trust decline. And as trust declines, the value that we place in that relationship or the value that we place in that system or that organization also drops. And as our trust goes down, as the value goes down, then what happens is our loyalty, it's it gets shifted. It gets moved to someone else or something else. And so that progression of trust and then value and then loyalty, that dynamic which we're interacting with as customers or as leaders or organizational members, whatever the case may be. But that is the dynamic where when you don't have trust, it has a deep effect downstream on the other things, which that's the whole premise of this theoretical framework that I studied in my doctoral work that I ultimately ran my data through. And it's been fascinating to see it continue to prove itself over and over and over that the most loyal individuals to an organization, whether employee or customers, it's not just that they have a high value placed on that person or that organization. It's because first and foremost, they have a high level of trust. And if that trust goes away, so too does the value and so too does the loyalty. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, whether you're the C-suite or just leading a team of people, you know, like you have five direct reports, the, the key is it, it's good, you know, you create an environment of psychological safety where people can express themselves and you're going to have differences of opinion with your team, right? But the, the, the challenge and what great leaders do best is we can agree, disagree, and we can debate, but once the decision's made, everybody has to walk out of that meeting room and say, this is our direction. And they have yeah. to, they have to communicate that as a team. You know, That's when right. you have seven people telling different versions of the truth, it's just, it's, it's just not good. A lot of the time, you know, you, you get, whether it's the universe or your, or God, you know, it puts, they put you in situations where you, move on to the next and that's what it seemed to do for you in terms of mm. when your dad died like you've got this clarity around what yeah. to do next mm. i mean talk about that a little bit more i'm not sure if i've ever articulated it the way that you just did and i appreciate that very much the clarity that i received was my dad was 77 when he died and he worked until he was 75. And between the ages of 75 and 77, he was the primary caregiver for my stepmom, who was really declining rapidly due to late stage Alzheimer's. The clarity that I received was beginning to ask myself the question, number one, what is it that I want to do long term? And then the second really piercing but vital question that I started asking myself is, what am I waiting for? I'm going to wait until I'm in my mid seventies to start exploring or doing something different. Or I, I just, I couldn't resolve that in my mind because so much of our day-to-day -day involves our vocation. I just began to ask that question in terms of what am I waiting for? If I'm feeling like the seed of wanting to use my past experiences and my research 
in order to help other people change and improve their workplace culture by having a deeper understanding of trust. And if all of these things have now converged and there's this confluence of these experiences, what am I waiting for? And I could not shake that question, Jeff. I really couldn't. And that was the journey that I had to really wrestle through over the course of a couple of years. I at least wanted to attempt something that I knew was deep down. And thankfully, with the counsel and encouragement of some very close friends, as well as uh, the encouragement of my wife, who ultimately she said, look, I would rather you try this and fail than not try it at all. And that was like the moment it was like, okay, we're going to go. I'm grateful for the gift of naivete as a very young entrepreneur a year ago, because knowing what I know now, that may have actually halted me from progressing uh, all in like I did, but you just have to go through that journey. You can't wait for things to be perfect in order for you to start. You and I both know the answers are in the journey, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that if the, there was a clarifying moment, a gift that entire traumatic experience had for me, which it's hard to even call it a gift, but I think it is a gift. It's that I was, I started giving myself permission to ask some of those critical life questions. What do I want to do? And what am I waiting for? What was the biggest surprise when you went full time into trust centric consulting? What was the biggest surprise you know, like, oh God, I didn't know about this. Another way to ask it is how many of those surprises were there and which ones really rose to the top, right? Which one were which ones were most consequential? I would say a couple of things. Number one, I realized how hard it was to get really clear about the work that I do. Number two, I recognized how powerful data is that's rooted in best practices. And, and the reason why I've realized that is because not only my doctoral research, but in some ways, even more importantly, I was invited by a close friend named Kurt Bartolich, who lives in Kansas City. He runs a research firm called Brand Certain, and he helps organizations with their brand repositioning. And he uses a quantitative approach. He's not a creative agency. He uses a quantitative data-driven approach to help clarify people's brands. So he invited me to do this national research. He authored all of the brand questions, and then he invited me to help author the internal employee leader trust questions. As a result of that, when we got the data back, it was so clarifying. We saw gaps all over the place in the data, so much diff you know, different opportunities. Now equipped with my doctoral work and then this critical national research that Kurt invited me to help him with by taking those two things into a conversation, into a facilitated meeting or into the online course that I created, or even into the writing of my book, that level of research and intentionality, that deep dive work, I think that's been super helpful in order to allow certain doors to be opened. And, and then, you know, from that creating an organizational trust assessment that we can then use to help organizations define their own reality. These are all things that I'm realizing in my mind, I'm like, it isn't about me persuading somebody to want to work with me. It's how can I provide clarity for them through research and assessment and their own data to where my role is now coming again, full circle. My role is to be a guide for them. We're going to hop on this river I've got some experiences doing this over here, but at the end of the day, 
every day it's a new day on the river, right? It's different water flowing every single day. Some of it's predictable, some of it's not predictable, all of that. But I've recognized that my role is to really be a guide with this work around trust. And so now as we pull this thread through of that summer job of being a river guide, now my role is more in terms of workplace culture and as a trust guide. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm reminded that even though this is a universal truth, perhaps like rivers flow downstream is a universal truth, but that doesn't mean that everybody has been on a river and they've navigated the waters, right? So now what I get to do is for a lot of organizations, they they know that trust is important, but they don't really know how to actually measure or implement change. And for the clients that I have the privilege of working with, that's that's some of the work that I get to do with them. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I just think it's, like I said, it's, it's a fascinating career journey. And uh, I could see you doing a kind of retreat on trust using whitewater rafting as a uh, I would love it. Let's go, Jeff. Let's we'll we'll get it set up for the summer. <laughs> so then you decide to write a book, and I believe it. Uh, per our discussion, it was like sixteen weeks. It, uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. I had a whole background of your career uh, and your doctoral research. But what was the what was the impetus? Um, two question. What was the impetus to write the book, and then two. What was your writing process like during that uh, 16 weeks? It was kind of the final step from an academic pursuit standpoint. You know, I had I'd done the undergraduate, I'd done the executive MBA, I'd done my doctoral work. And then I just felt like there was one final piece. And that final piece was the ability to take my knowledge and then to translate that into a book. I had wanted to do a book for quite some time, but I just kind of fits and stops and, and, you know, it was challenging to be able to start that process for anybody who's ever tried to write a book. It's, it's not easy. And then I, I had the gift of meeting with a, a friend named Will Severns, who he runs a company called Streamline Books and Streamline Books. They help from a project management and direction, and they provide a developmental editor for you. And that's that 16 week process that Streamline invited me into. And I can honestly say there is no way that I would, number one, have written the kind of book that I wrote. And perhaps I would have never even completed that book without the help of, of Will and the, and the team at Streamline. There's just, it's not possible. Like they, they kept me accountable. They kept me on track. They gave me the direction that I needed. They helped me learn how to write a book versus just writing like I'd always written before. They taught me a new way to write. And as a result of that, that process was really challenging and really time crunched, but I'm very, very thankful. I got a shipment of books in yesterday that I'm going to be giving to a client. And I just was was very grateful that I could open that box and pull out some of those books and really reflect back on 2023 as not only a time that I started my business full-time, but also to to help the business by being able to write the book. Yeah, we talked, uh, you actually had, I think when we had coffee, you had like only four copies or five <laughs> copies of the book. Um, yeah. And uh, you had with you your last one. But uh, talk, tell the audience about the cover. We we had a good conversation about that. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, so the cover is, even the colors on the cover, you know, it's kind of a, a blue, shades of blue. And then there's this yellow bold title that says Closing the Trust Gap. 
and in the subtitle of taking action on what matters most for leaders, teams, and organizations. I really wanted this book to be not only a manifesto of the work that I do, but also I wanted it to be actionable. I wanted it to be portable and helpful for a leader to where even if somebody read the book that I never interacted with in terms of a client, I wanted this book to be helpful. That was really, really important for me. The book itself, there's a bridge and there's like a gap in the bridge and the word gap is in between these two broken edges of a bridge. The cover itself is kind of outdoorsy. It feels like obviously you're outside, you're looking at a bridge and then in the in the distance, there's kind of these silhouetted mountains, which this is all very representative of my, of my adventure experiences in the backcountry and on the river. And then the title itself, I was going to call it something different, but my wife wisely encouraged me. She said, you need to, I think that you need to title the book, Closing the Trust Gap, because you can't title the book, The Solution of What It Means to Close the Trust Gap. You need to actually present the the reader or the person passing by the cover with the problem and invite them into the solution. And as soon as she said that, and then I connected with my developmental editor and they loved it. And so that's, I have uh, only one person to thank for the title of my book. And it is my wife. She was the one that said, I would even read that book. Even if I didn't know you, I would read that book simply because of the title. Yeah. I mean, it, by the title, it could be about business. It, uh, it could be, I know it's, you know, the, the subtitles, you know, taking action on what matters most for leaders teams and organizations but i mean you can it it's true relationships too probably yes. in, in reading mm -hmm. the books so um is there a specific type of client you can help describe that to our listeners this was probably jeff one of the hardest parts about the book writing process was the encouragement and really the insistence of the process of i had to identify my target reader even though lots of people can read different books, if an author doesn't have a target reader, it's going to be challenging. Because trust is something that is that's agnostic. It's applicable in any industry, any institution, any company, any school district, whatever the case may be. The audience member that I came up with through a lot of discovery with my developmental editor was really a leader who finds themselves in a new season of leadership. So think the first six months of a leader in a brand new position, whether it's a brand new leader or a veteran leader in a brand new company or a veteran leader in an existing company. And for whatever reason, they find themselves in a really new season, whether it's growth or decline or new programs or external forces or competition, whatever the case may be. But it's in that season, that first three to six months where these leaders have an opportunity as well as they feel perhaps more compelled to assess their current workplace culture quantitatively. They can have conversations around trust. They can introduce a framework that becomes a shared framework of understanding to assess trust ongoing. And they, they are doing deeper cultural level work within the company. It's more difficult, I think, to do that if you've been there for a long time and there's not been a lot of change, but whether it's through chaos or crisis or a core change of the organization, there's this, this opportunity for these leaders in the new season to think about 
what it means to identify and then close some of these trust gaps. So I've learned that many of my clients, as well as the readers who have read it, a lot of them are saying that they're brand new to this role. They're in a new season in their company. And so that is the target audience that I wrote towards and for, and I believe that it's resonating with them. So I'm, I'm thankful to have had clarity on that early on in the process. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, Corey, there's two groups I'd love to help um, with leadership advice from uh, great people like yourself. The first group is that person coming out of college. They're, like, they're going to begin their professional career journey. Um, what advice do you have from that for them getting their first job as well as starting their professional career? Well, I would utilize the framework of trust. We call it the structure of trust. Number one, grow in your competencies and there's lots of competencies to grow in, your technical competencies, your leadership competency, your management competency, time management, project management, financial understanding, all of those things, communication competency, that's a vital building block of trust. The second building block has to do with problem solving. Find new problems to solve, ask about the problems that need to be solved, provide creative solutions to problems that need to be solved, and then be a part of that process with other people who have many, many more years of experience than you. So the problem solving and, and actually building up your ability to identify and then also execute the problem solving process is a vital building block of trust. And then the third and final building block of trust is caring for others. It's sympathy, empathy, emotional intelligence. It's listening. It's being appropriately transparent with other people. It's understanding that you have to really think about the needs of, of the person in terms of not just their vocational needs, but their social needs, or perhaps their physical needs, or in some environments, their spiritual needs. Those three things, competency, problem solving, and care for others. It's not only good form to do that, but the research shows over and over and over that if you do all three of those things, you will be trustworthy. You will be building trust. And as you know, Jeff, if you can step into an organization or an environment where you're building trust and you've got momentum, you're going to have more opportunities than you know what to do with. And the challenge is not going to be moving in an organization towards higher levels of leadership. The challenge is going to be choosing between which ones, which areas of leadership you want to move into. So that foundational framework of trust, I would encourage every, well, every person, but certainly every new person going into the workforce. Yeah, I love those, that building block approach. I, I've never asked a guest this. I, let's pretend you're a leader, okay? Let's say you're strong at competency. You're mm -hmm. strong at problem solving. You know, I would say you're a caring person, Corey. I would describe myself as a caring person. But what if that person that you're trying to help is just by nature not a caring person? Like, how do you help that person? Yep. Well, I can tell you what the data says. The number one thing that a person can do to strengthen the building block of caring for others is by listening actively. So if I were their supervisor, what I would coach them in is, I would actually say, okay, we're going to go into this meeting. You've got high levels of competency. You've got a lot of great ideas. You've got good experiences. You've got a ton of energy. You're willing to problem solve. What I want you to do is I want you to literally count nine questions that you ask before you offer any solutions. I mean, to just that 
that clear of saying, for this next meeting, let's think about this in terms of a nine to one ratio, nine questions before you even offer a solution. Even if you know what the solution is and you could offer it two questions in, I want you to work through the discipline of listening actively to other people because that process in and of itself is trust building. That's more important than anything else that you can do in terms of demonstrating care for others. So that's how specific I would be with a new person. I would say, okay, we're going to go nine to one here on this meeting, nine questions before any solutions offered. Love that answer. That is so good. And I love the quantitative approach about it because everybody, you know, most people understand that. So you, you're like, okay, that, that's seven questions. <laughs> right. It's like they're, you know, you see them over there holding up their fingers and, and it's really, really hard. I think we all need to be about that, but especially for somebody that's new, they're anxious to solve it. They're anxious to demonstrate their competency, but what they really need to do is they need to listen and they need to be patient. And as they do that, they will build trust as they build trust, their voice will be heard as their voice gets heard, they have more influence. As they have more influence, they will move into a different role and that will be formalized. But that requires patience and intentionality. Corey, thank you so much for being on uh, Corporate Couch today. I just love your career journey. I can't <laughs> wait to see where uh, trust-centric uh, consulting goes in the future. And I'm, I'm grateful we had a chance to meet and uh, get to know each other. Jeff, thank you. It's really been an honor. Really appreciate the time today. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. What a great conversation with Corey. Uh, I just, I love his energy and just, he's just very intelligent and caring and just a great individual. 29 marathons. He was an avid golfer. He hiked the Grand Canyon with uh, one of his sons. Yeah. Which uh, this past summer, we've had a lot of guests and, They've had interesting career journeys, but I would I would say that Corey's had the most interesting. Like when you look at his career, like right out of college, he starts an inside sales at a lumber company. <laughs> but he he didn't do any sales. He drove a forklift. <laughs> yeah, I was Which frankly I a little confused over that, but okay. Right. <laughs> And I asked him, I said, they didn't, you didn't have to make calls while you were on the forklift. Deals, <laughs> did you? He goes, no, I just drove the forklift. You know, then he went back to his kind of his roots in college. He was a white water rafting guide and head of marketing at a um, company there for about seven years. And just, yeah, he went to the YMCA. He went to William Jewell and did, he was in the not-for-profit and then he was a, in the some kind of, I mean, he just, and then he was a pastor at a, a Baptist church, Mount Pleasant in Liberty. And then he goes back to school for his MBA at Rockhurst, then gets his doctorate in Missouri. And that's where it all started the gel, he said in Rockhurst. And what I loved about it is a lot of people don't have a career strategy and it's okay to lack career clarity as he's proven, because he, he was in all those different places for a reason, and that's going to make him a better consultant for companies on trust and becoming trust-centric because all of his diverse experience and his education. I was honored that he was on the podcast, right? And his book launched, um, Closing the Trust Gap, you know, 
basically right before he appeared on uh, on the podcast. So, yeah, love them. Yeah, I've talked before about the the uh, quality of your life is the product of all of your previous experiences. So when you multiply this job by this job by this job by this experience, this experience. And, you know, it's also funny that that couple of interviews ago, we've had a couple of people that literally out of out of college went straight into their thing and where yeah. Corey took more, more, yeah, took a much more circuitous route. So I think the takeaway from that is that it doesn't really matter. You live your life. You do what you're meant to do. And uh, it may not be what everybody else's life is. You gain inspiration from them, but ultimately you're responsible for your own. Corey and I took very, very similar paths, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he went to Southwest Baptist. I went to Southwest Baptist. He went to Rockhurst University. I went to Rockhurst University. So we were just kind of following each other. He was employed by William Jewell, which is the cross-state rival from Southwest Baptist then he was employed by, by Pleasant Valley Baptist, which is the cross-city rival from First Baptist Raytown, which is where I attended. So it's like we were always together and all that. He ran 29 marathons, and I did not run 29 marathons. <laughs> I, I, so that's kind of where we had were. driven 26.2 miles, so that's the marathon. There you go. <laughs> I have driven that much, but I've not run 29 marathons or that ultra marathon that he talked about that he ran. Yeah, in uh, South Africa, 54 miles. Oh, yeah. man, yeah. Oh, you have 11 hours, and then they'll say a do not finish. I thought, you know, it's not going to take me 11 hours not to finish that thing. Right. So, <laughs> so it was amazing. One of the things that I thought was the was the neatest thing when you brought it up as, and compared it to Michael Jordan, was he said, you know, it, you can whitewater raft 8,000 times down the same river, but it is a brand new experience for most of the other people in the boat. And so you have to live it as if it's a brand new experience. And as a musician myself, we have the same kind of concept. A lot of times we'll be playing a show, uh, especially if you're doing a dinner theater, a community theater, or, or something like that, uh, which I've done a lot of, and you're playing literally the same show night after night after night after night. But almost every one of the people in that audience, that's the very first and the only time that they'll ever see that show. They deserve for you to give them the best, freshest performance of that, of that show as possible. And that means the same thing in business. You know, you, maybe you have some sort of boilerplate presentation that you give over and over and over again. So you give the same presentation to finance, and then you give the same presentation to the C-suite, and give the same presentation to, to HR, and over and over and over again. A lot of us have those kind of things. You have to remember that every one of those, that's the first and the only time that they'll ever see that presentation. And so you have to do something to keep them fresh. And uh, that may mean adding a new joke at the, at the beginning of the presentation or telling a slide something different or inserting a slide or deleting a slide or something like that. Do something to make everything that you do in your job fresh for every audience that you're in front of. It was a fantastic yeah, I think interview. That, that is spot on, Joe, for uh, any leader. And you have to constantly remind yourself, especially, you know, you know, a lot of times you do uh, onboarding presentations for new employees. Oh, what does your team do? Right. Right. You know, right. That's millions right. of those, uh, literally. Right. And, you know, you have to bring a, the same energy because this is the first time that person, no matter how many times you've done that presentation, 
that person is only going to listen to it. And, you know, when is it most typical that you give that kind of presentation uh, about what does your team do? You do it when you start that job, right? So that may be the very first thing that you ever ever do. You you go in, you start the job. You and I have been in that situation before together. Go in, you start the job, and this is the very first time that you've ever been in front of marketing or the very first time you've ever been in front of HR or something like that. And first impressions are incredibly, incredibly powerful. And maybe that's not fair, but that's how life works. Any leadership advice uh, based on Corey's uh, conversation uh, that you want to give the audience today? Yeah, our leadership advice comes from that great philosopher, Michael Scott, today. One time when his office was in a dilemma about whether to spend their surplus money on either office chairs or on a new copier. And after everybody had made their presentations and everybody had given their their arguments on which one he should buy, Michael Scott said the following. He said, I have swallowed all of your ideas and now I'm going to digest them and see what comes out the other end. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.